Thank you, men. What a comforting thought, David. That was so good. King over the curse. No power over us. No power. So good. That's why we sing with all our heart, eternally secure, but the one who's king over all things. So let us now turn to what he has left for us in this sojourn, the word of God, the word of God. Let's grab your copy and turn to the book of Exodus. If you are visiting with us, another hearty welcome to you. You'll find a copy of God's word right in front of you. Look in the rack in front. You can grab one of those and Read and study along with us. Exodus, we're in chapter 27. Exodus 27, that is our home for today. And we continue, as you settle in there, we continue, remember, our study of this second book of God's Word. A word that broadly and consistently demonstrates this truth to us. We've hinted at it in song already by the men this morning, but there's a consistent truth like a connective tissue through the Word of God, and it's this, that the way to life is death. The way to life is through death. There is no true life without death. What do we mean by that? Specifically, what is meant is the need for sacrifice. Beloved, sacrifice is what enables true living under God, to God, and for God. Yes, we cannot live, Coram Dio, life before the face of God without sacrifice. We cannot live before His face without sacrifice. L. Michael Morales, writing about sacrifice, and sacrifice specifically in the law, says it well. He says this, I quote, Sacrifice makes possible makes possible life in the divine presence, end quote. Sacrifice enables you to live before his face. Westmont, to live in the presence of God, there must be sacrifice, thus there must be death. And church, that has always been true of life on earth since the curse. In fact, the first act of God, do you remember? Think back to the beginning. The first act of God after the curse was to what? To make garments to live in for Adam and Eve in the wake of sin. From the skins of dead animals, we find that account in Genesis 3.21, a sacrifice to continue. Their son Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock. Do you remember that? The firstborn of his flock, Genesis 4.4. Offering, by the way, is a common, frequent word used synonymously for sacrifice in the Old Testament. Noah offered a sacrifice on the first mention, by the way, of an altar in Scripture. It was with Noah, and that was in Genesis 8.20. The text says in Genesis 8, he took clean animals and birds and killed them, burnt them as what? As sacrifice, an offering after divine preservation, God keeping, remember, Noah and his family, the eight of them, in his presence after the flood. And to mark that they would continue in God's presence, sacrifice. Shortly after in Genesis, we see Abraham, you remember it in Genesis 12, and then again in Genesis 13. We then observe Isaac in Genesis 26. 
And of course, Jacob twice in Genesis 33 and 35. Israel's patriarchs, each one of them in those chapters, building altars of sacrifice to the Lord in his presence. Even their contemporary, the man that lived very likely at the time of the patriarchs, Job, understood the need for sacrifice. In Job 1.5, remember that, Job, after presumably offering sacrifices for his own life, we are told then what? Offered sacrifices, the text says, burnt offerings for all his children, for their lives. Their sacrifice needed, as Job, the man of God, recognizes, because it may be what? The text says they sinned in their heart. Of course, we've already encountered sacrifice in the first part of this book. Remember for Israel, back in Egypt, that final plague that would break Pharaoh, Egypt's firstborn, do you remember, would die. But not Israel's. Why? Israel would not die. Why? Because of the sacrifice articulated in Exodus 12. You remember that. The sacrifice, remember, smeared over the doorposts, the lamb's bloodshed for the purpose of deliverance. That sacrifice, that death, that led to life for Israel, out of Egypt, out of bondage. There's your picture in Exodus. The sacrifice, the shed blood, so that Israel, you can continue and have life. That was escape from death. There was the pathway to life, if you will, no other way. Vividly, the blood-stained doorposts illustrated life only came through sacrifice. What a picture. Only through sacrifice. We could mention an entire book, the next book in Scripture, the third book, Prescribing Sacrifice, Leviticus. Leviticus. The burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the guilt offerings. You know them when you read Leviticus, the opening chapters. All the offerings. All given so that God's people could, here it is, remain in God's presence with right relationship. Sacrifice needed to maintain right relationship. Then, of course, at the heart of Leviticus chapter 16, we have, of course, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. The one day in the year, the most important sacrifice for ancient Israel. The high priest, you know it, taking a young bull as a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Once a year, that blood sprinkled where? On the mercy seat. Between the cherubim, on top of the ark. Once a year, that was done. And why? God tells His people in Leviticus 17.11... The blood makes atonement for life. That's the picture. Remember in the law and these sacrifices, God pointing them to the need for sacrifice for life. The necessary sacrifice so that in that administration, Israel can walk in God's presence and have life. That's the point. Sacrifices, of course, continued beyond the wilderness. Necessary in the promised land. You remember the entry under the young general Joshua. Joshua 8.31, upon the conquest or the beginning of the conquest, an altar of uncut stones was built. Then offerings, Joshua 8. With judges, we witness sacrifice, sometimes even tragically with Jephthah in Judges 11, the need for it. 
And then kings seen in abundance with those like Solomon in 2 Chronicles 1, verse 6. We're told David's immediate heir, Solomon, offered a thousand burnt offerings on the bronze altar, the altar that we're going to see today. Yes, right up to the pinnacle of the old Israel kingdom, at the height of its might, there was sacrifice. But even with the destruction of the temple, the place of sacrifice, in 586 BC, the reality of sacrifice didn't end there. It didn't end with exile. The Lord Jesus Christ, as we've already remembered today, would come centuries later and lay down his own life as the sacrifice for his people, his death for our life. That is the one necessary sacrifice and the only one that gives life beyond this one. That sacrifice we need to note as we begin this morning is only effectual to those that God has called his own. That sacrifice is only effectual to those regenerated that repent from their sin and place their faith and trust in the king. And the king alone, no other sacrifice atones for sin. Only the sacrifice of God's Son and belief in Him will make you right before God because of His work. That is why the symbol of sacrifice, listen, will continue into the kingdom of God. That's right. The symbol of sacrifice continues into the kingdom of God. Yes, while the Lamb of God sits on the throne, rules as king. For a millennium here on earth, there still will be sacrifices. You say, where is that? Ezekiel 43 describes the altar. Ezekiel 46 describes the offerings. Those sacrifices, listen, in the kingdom, like in Israel, those sacrifices, like all sacrifices, save Christ, earn nothing. Nothing. The sacrifices of the old kingdom, Aaron or Solomon, are just like the sacrifices of the coming kingdom. All of those, listen, on earthly altars that simply point to Messiah. You see that? All of them, like neon lights, flashing arrows to say, this, in preview, this post points back to Messiah, to the one sacrifice of Christ himself. And that one sacrifice is the only true sacrifice when you think of your soul that earns any merit before God the Father. Yet, Westmount, even with the sole efficiency of Christ's blood, we still have much sacrifice here. Yes, much sacrifice both in prescription and practice in the pages of Scripture. And as we consider this portion of Exodus, these final chapters of the book, whose subject and focus is the presence of God, remember, among his people, we know then that we will need to deal with sacrifice at some point here. We know that. That's the economy. We know that. Today, we're introduced to the ancient apparatus of sacrifice, and it's the altar. It's the altar. Let's begin with first a reading of the altar. This is the beginning of our text. Look down at chapter 27, verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. 
And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Father in heaven, Lord, we take these words, these divinely inspired words from you, as we consider the altar, even the court and oil today. Lord, we pray that you would press them deep into our heart, that we would see them, understand them, truly receive them by way of application and practice, Lord, and ultimately that the reception and practice of these words would give you glory. Oh God, help us to do so, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. That is the altar. Look at those verses there, 1 to 8. That's the altar. And we will look not only at it, but where it resides as well, which is the courtyard. We encounter both in this chapter today. These two, the altar and the courtyard, like the other pieces we have studied. Remember the ark, the table, and the lamp. They're all pieces of the tabernacle, which is the dwelling place of God, His presence with man. And again, as we noted off the top, the first piece we see today, the altar, is a foundational prerequisite, a necessary mechanism for the presence of God. So let's take a look at this, the first piece today, and the first point, the place of offering. The place of offering. Look again at what we just read. Look at verse 1. This tabernacle piece is the altar. Now we need to start with some clarification on this piece, specifically with where we're going in the rest of Exodus. We don't want this to be too confusing. It is, and look at it, it has the article on it, the definiteness, it's the altar. It's not to be confused with another altar that we'll see in chapter 30. There, in chapter 30, that altar, chapter 30 verse 1 says, is simply an altar a smaller altar, a more functional altar for the way of the incense. Its function was simply to burn incense, hence the name of that altar, and then we're going to see that. That was the altar of incense. Again, we're going to get there, but we want to make sure that distinction is clear. That was just an altar. This is the altar. This altar that we're looking at in chapter 27 was the bronze altar. The bronze altar. Or, as it's also called later in the law... The altar of burnt offering, Leviticus 4 refers to it as such, no surprise in a book of offerings like Leviticus, the altar of burnt offering. Speaking of Leviticus, this is the altar, by the way, that all the offerings were given on. This is the altar, the bronze altar. This is the one, and we're going to see its location, its size in a moment. This is the one that all the prescribed offerings were killed on. And what's important to know here is that this altar was, and here's another name for it, the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice. This tabernacle piece then, 
And verses 1 to 8 was the place of offering. So let's examine the details of this altar, shall we? In verse 1, we see it is made of the familiar, it's now very familiar, acacia wood. That is the good wood, it's the given wood, remember, for the location that they're in. And that is wood construction, but at the end of verse 2, look at it, we see the wood is overlaid with bronze. Bronze. Bronze, of course, is not gold, as any Olympian will tell you. It is still valuable, but not to the level of gold, right? Precious, but not gold. Remember, it appears in these tabernacle instructions that God reserves gold for where? The holy places, more specifically, His presence. And the pieces in the holy places, like the ark, the table, the lampstand, all of those overlaid with gold. Sometimes, like the lampstand, gold through and through. Along, by the way, with the incense altar in chapter 30, that too will have gold in it the closer you get to the presence of God. All pure gold as they reside in the inner sanctum, if you will, closest to God's presence. The items outside, however, the holy places, like the altar, and the basin we'll see in chapter 30, but the altar today, we see finished here in bronze. Again, just a signal that our proximity now is further out from the center. Okay, so we have this as an altar made of wood and overlaid with bronze. Also in verse 1, we're given its dimensions. Do you remember the ancient standard, the cubit, from the fingertip to the elbow? Those dimensions, if we were to convert them, they convert to a square altar that's seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, so a square, but its height was four and a half feet. And I think we can picture that. That was the altar. Additionally, in verse 2, we learn that this altar will have horns on the corners. Did you note that detail? Horns on the corners. Now, we're not given much about the purpose of these horns. Yet, of course, what did we learn last week? People still speculate. Remember, we need to just stick, though, with what Scripture tells us. And with the altar horns and their purpose, Scripture shows us three things. It doesn't tell us exactly what they're given for, but it shows us three things. As we're going to see now, that's enough. Firstly, the horns are not separate pieces. Look at the middle of verse 2. Do you see that? The horns are one with the altar. That's interesting. Later in Exodus 29.12, we'll see the instruction to the priests, not only pour the animal's blood at the altar's base, but also what? Dab the horns in blood with their finger. So take some of the blood and dab the horns, the four corners of the altar. Secondly, the horns might have been used to tie down or bind the sacrifices. Where do we get that from? Psalm 118.27 says this, Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So that's a possibility. Three, the horns might have been a place of refuge for Israelites in legal trouble. As you think through the accounts in Kings particularly, and the transfer of the kingdom from David and Solomon, you might remember a couple men running to the horns seemingly for refuge or protection. Do you remember Adonijah, who was another son of David, not the chosen son of David, to take his place? That was Solomon. Adonijah said, what? I'm king. He established himself as king, and he instituted then a rebellion. People went with Adonijah. People like Joab 
David's trusty general went with him as well. And if you remember in that account, both men are on the run once Solomon firmly establishes his kingdom. And what do they do? You have Adonijah running to the horns of the altar, almost asking for mercy, if you will. That was the picture. And then, of course, later in the next chapter, you have Joab doing the same thing. So it would seem, why do we note that? The horns would seem to be, we're not told it explicitly, They would seem to be a place of mercy, a last resort. I'm clinging to the horns. Have mercy on me. Again, just observed. So the altar is wooden. It's overlaid with bronze. It's square with horns on the corners. That's the structure of the altar. And with the altar, there are utensils. Look at them. Five different kinds. Also, by the way, formed with bronze. And they're all found in verse 3. Look at it. All these utensils would be for the cleanup work around the altar. So you have pots. Likely would have been for taking away the remains and the ashes. With the pots, there's shovels, presumably used to fill the pots. There were uh, basins. Likely would have been used for the blood throwing and the blood dipping. Remember, needed a, a catch basin for that. And there were forks. Large forks would be needed to turn the sacrifice on the altar. And there were fire pans, which, as the name suggests, for catching the coals. In verses 4 to 7, God prescribes three more details. And listen, two of them are familiar, and one of them not so much. First, let's look at the unfamiliar one, a grating for the altar. Again, that grating is also made of bronze. Now, Both the exact placement of the grating, whether it's inside the altar or on the outside, and the purpose of the grating have been historically uncertain. I've got to tell you this week, as I'm digging into these tabernacle pieces, I cannot tell you how many different pictures of the altar I saw this week. And one of the key things, they all had structurally the same kind of thing, same dimensions, horns, etc., but the grating was in all these different places on the altar. One of the things it tells us is that we can't be sure where that grating was on the altar. Even history, they grappled with that. Many different ideas, so we leave it there. So that's the unfamiliar, but secondly, something familiar. This altar is to be made with what? Look at verse 6. You've seen this before. Poles. Poles. And that alerts us. These poles are similar to the ark. Remember, the ark was made with poles. There made of gold, here made of bronze. And again, what do poles remind us of in these tabernacle pieces? Remember, mobility, temporary. That's the point of the poles. This will not be in place. This altar, like the ark, is not going to be stationary. You're going to move. This is very temporary. And that's what the poles alert us to. Mobility also, by the way, is reminded, or we're reminded of it in the fact that the altar, look at verse 8, is hollow. This would be, some would say, a mercy of God to have a hollow altar, a lightweight structure that they would carry around versus a solid piece. The altar instructions then are capped with this reminder. Look at the end of verse 8. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be. Does that sound familiar? As I have said it, so you do. So shall it be. This is now, by the way, the fourth time in just three chapters that God reminds Moses and Israel of this attention to detail. Multiple reminders to what? 
to make this tabernacle exactly as I commanded you. Do you think they needed reminders of that? Do we need reminders of specific obedience? Yes, we do. True for the church, true for Israel. And listen, lest it be unclear that God demands exact obedience of His own. Listen, precise, exact obedience. Not obedience in spirit. Not obedience that said, God knows my heart. Not obedience that says, God understands. Right? Lest this be unclear, look at the text over and over again. Do it, my beloved, exactly the way that I've prescribed it to you. Oh, that's hard for us, isn't it? Yeah, but what about my way? I will obey this way, and Lord, conform your will to the way that I would say that it would be done. God says over and over again to his people, do it exactly the way that I have prescribed to you. That's the place of offering. The altar, the bronze altar, if you will. Now we move to its location, which is our second point. The place of offering, now the public observation. You know, by way of introduction to this point and this tabernacle area, this needs to be said. The Bible has very little to say about private worship. Did you know that? The Bible has almost nothing to say about private worship. In fact, barely anything at all. We might be pushing it to try and squeeze it in corners. Now, what God calls for over and over again, every dispensation, every time, is corporate, gathered, body, worship, no conditions. God does not tell each Israelite here, you know what, in your tent make your own private altar and just let people know that you were doing something with that altar and that's enough. What we'll see, God does not prescribe the priest to go around tent to tent, right? You just go to the tents because people, they're not going to leave their tents. You need to go to them. He doesn't say that. No, as we've remarked around this time, actually, last year, for those of you that were here and remember, what God does call for is for his people to gather together in one place and to there in that one place give offerings to him. That's what God calls for. That's normative. That's the heart of God. Remember, we did a survey last year, not just of Old Testament pilgrimages, songs of ascents and so on. We didn't just look at the gathering in temples and the gathering around altars, but we looked at the New Testament gatherings, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 11, Philemon's house, do you remember? And so on. This is worship. These are offerings in the sight of others. Here it is. Offerings in the sight of the gathered people. That is what we'll see here. Sacrifices taking place by way of public observation. As such, the altar we just learned of is not in the holy place. It's not in the holy of holies. No, it is outside the tent, as we learn precisely in chapter 30, verse 18, where we'll learn about the bronze basin with it. That is outside the tent, the place we will look at in a moment. It's not restricted like the tent, where only the priests or the priests on the Day of Atonement went. This is sacrifice in the corporate, public place that God's people come to. And where is that here? Well, in verse 9, look at it with me, we see this. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side... 
The court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long. Its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there should be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be fifteen cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court... There should be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50 and the height 5 cubits with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Lots of dimensions there, lots of detail. And these are dimensions and details for an outer courtyard around the tabernacle. This was an enclosed but open space for any Israelite, but specifically, listen, For those bringing offerings and sacrifices before God's presence. That's the point. This tabernacle court would have been, let me just give you the scope, 150 feet by 75 feet. So picture a football field. Take a quarter of a football field, and that's what you're looking at. 150 by 75. The court walls would have been only seven and a half feet high. So listen, half the size of the actual tent, the actual tabernacle. And let's be clear, we're talking about the court around the tent, around the tabernacle. So this court had walls that were not as tall or imposing as the tabernacle structure itself. In fact, half the height. The walls would have been that brilliant linen white held up with, and you read it, sturdy pegs and hooks and bases. And the front gate of the court, so all that simply means is the entrance to the courtyard, right? It would have had an entrance, was similar to the tent entrance. See the consistency. There was a hanging screen, again, of what? Blue and purple and scarlet with embroidered needlework. Remember, the images on these outer screens or veils would have been on the outer No cherubim or gold hooks is near God's presence, silver hooks and bronze bases. In fact, everything in the outer court, the altar, the basin, utensils and all, all of them, according to verse 19, were to be made of bronze. Again, familiar cues of where we are in the tabernacle complex, further out. Now, if you're like me, you need a good visual. I see we've got the map up already. Let's zoom in for a moment and and look at this tabernacle complex. This is the simplest thing that we could look at. And again, this helps you frame it. You see the tent in the middle. It's got the darker covering over it. And you have the outer veil, by the way, that purplish veil that you see there, that would have been the outer veil. The inner veil you can't see because that's in the tent. And in the courtyard, you see how big it is. You have the altar right in the middle of that courtyard. 
and that object between the tabernacle and the altar we're going to look at in chapter 30. That's the bronze basin. Now, before we leave this point in survey, I want you to consider this cord again. Let's look at it. It was outside the tent. Look at that courtyard. It's outside the tent. But it's still enclosed from the outside. Do you see that? This is intentional. It's still outside the tent, but it's still an enclosure. Do you see that? In other words, the sacrifices, look at the altar, that part were not public in the sense for just anyone to see. I want you to see that. But they were to be observed by the gathered Israelites to see, that they would know and see sacrifice. These sacrifices were only performed by one, the priests, but they were viewed by all. These sacrifices were for corporate observation for all God's people to see. And yes, these reminders, right, these sacrifices needed to be repeated over and over and over for all to see, all of God's people to see. Why? Because everything outside of that court... Everything outside of those linen hangings, if you will, everything outside that court, outside of God's presence, is individual. It's individual. The law screams this when you think of the tabernacle. And yet everything that God presents and prescribes, think with me, within this enclosure is what? Corporate. It's corporate. And we need this, Westmount, when we think of the tabernacle courtyard. The gathered people seeing the sacrifice. Why do we need this? Well, as much as you like being here this morning, as much as you may recognize, loved one, that you need to be here this morning, your grand default is what? Self. Right? That's your grand default, is self. Yes, it's true for all of us. If you're in the line of Adam, and I'm pretty sure we all are, Your grand default is yourself. And I don't know what self is for you, but I do know this as we consider that courtyard one last time and the gathered people. Whatever self is for you, you need to know this this morning, that self threatens your sacrifice. Can I say that again for all of us, myself included? Self threatens your sacrifice. Self gets in the way of sacrifice. Me, climb up on that altar. I dare not do that. I can't let that go. Our default is self, and it threatens the call to sacrifice. Sacrifice here, and this is why it is a public observation for God's people, that we would be reminded over and over and over again the need and necessity for sacrifice. And that sacrifice is indeed for God's people. And the new administration would make this very clear. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is your living sacrifice, your life. That you lay your life down under the lordship of not you, but the lordship of the one that was sacrificed for you. You live for him. That's the courtyard and public observation within it. One final piece to close this chapter. We're presented, look at it, with two remaining verses. Two remaining verses. You look at them there, hanging at the end of chapter 27. They're not aimless or loose threads. Instead, those two verses are a bridge. They take us from the courtyard back into the tent. They take us from the people to the priests. 
fact, the priests will be the focus of the next two chapters. That's where we'll be in the coming weeks. Let's read these verses and consider how they take us there, how they set the table. Look at verse 20. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. First, look at verse 20, a command for all people. So here's your bridge. This is a collective effort. All Israel, every member, and every member is to do what? To bring oil for the lamps. Remember the lampstand ever burning in chapter 25? Well, this is where the oil came from. But not just any oil. Look at it. Pure, beaten olive oil. That would be, in ancient times, the very best of oil. Why? Well, pure speaks for itself. Beaten, it would have been beaten versus crushed. Normally they would crush it. This was a beaten, more gentler approach. So you're not mutilating the olive, so to speak. And then the oil of olives, that smoke that would come from such pure beaten olives, would be a clear smoke. It wouldn't be that dense, translucent stuff that you normally see smoke give. This is the pure, almost transparent smoke that would be coming up from the lamp. All the people were to bring their best, and note it, to bring their best for regular consumption. And where? Look at verse 21. Here we encounter another name for the tabernacle, name for the tent, to the tent of meeting. Talked about all the different names, sanctuary, tent, and so on, all synonymous with the tabernacle. Here you get another one, the tent of meeting, and that, again, name speaks for itself. There, verse 21, in the holy place where the lampstand was, outside the veil that is before the testimony. So you see the location there. The law in the ark, that's the location. In that place there, we're introduced formally now to those that were chosen. Here's your bridge. Those that were chosen from the people, from the corporate, chosen to be representatives of the people. The priests. And here in verse 21, the first ones are named Aaron and his sons. Those are the people's representatives. Those ones, Aaron and his sons, would stand for the many. Do you see that? They represent, those ones represent the many. Again, who they are, what they do, even what they wear is coming up in the weeks ahead, and we'll get to that. The priests, the light keepers, the sacrifice makers, that role, that need, look at the end of verse 21, was a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. That's an important final verse. To be remembered forever. Yes, there would always need to be one that would stand for the many. Do you see that? This is the picture, this is the principle here. One standing for the many. Beyond the wilderness, beyond fallen judges, beyond corrupt kings, as we prepare ourselves for the next couple of chapters and the next couple of weeks, we know there's never a shortage for that. In one sense, it's ingrained in humanity. Jeremy was reminding us of the dominion mandate, right? This morning. 
And in us, there's many that want to run into the line of humanity and say, I will be that one. I will lead. I'll be the representative for many. Give me the label. Give me the CEO title. Give me the political office. And some just say, let me lead a family. Let me lead this body. Let me lead this group. There's no shortage of people that say, I can stand for the many. And where has that got us? Where is that one? We know the answer to that. No, what we need to reflect on as we're ready to study the priests, it's not just one that would stand for many. Anyone can do that, right? It's one that would sacrifice for the many. I mean, these days, even those that starting to see this clearly would say, well, that's leadership, sacrificial leadership. We get that. But listen, not just one sacrifice for many, not just offer sacrifices that we'll see, and not just about sacrifice generally, one that would sacrifice self for the many. Do you see that? One that would say, I will sacrifice myself completely for the sake of the many. One that would not just sacrifice. I want you to think in a contemporary way right now. Because they have so many that want to want to do this. Not just a sacrifice that's in word or opinion, God forbid. Deed or want. That's not the sacrifice we're talking about. One that would sacrifice their very body, yes, their very life, to lay it down, as we talked about, as an act of love, as a bridge, as a communion, as a tabernacle. So that we can dwell with and in the presence of God. Is there such a one? There is. And of course, we need to close as we've been running parallel with Hebrews 8 to 10. Turn there as we close and be reminded of those final verses. Final verses in this section in the middle of chapter 10 talking about the priests. And again, this is just by way of preview. And let's read them again as we think of one standing for the many and the futility versus the fullness. Let's pick it up in verse 11. And every priest, so this is every priest in a human administration, stands daily at his service offering repeatedly, that would be over and over again, the same sacrifices and note this, which can never take away sins. Lots of sacrifices No soul effect in the sense of salvation. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Just a preview, by the way, of what is to come when you consider the nations and God's enemies. And then this in verse 14. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Great verse for, look at it, verse 14, for by a single offering in the place of ruined sinners, Christ offered himself. He inserted himself into the place, Christian, that you and I should be. 
The bowls of God's wrath pouring out should be me and you. And Christ says, I will go under there and I will bear God's wrath for you. You will not bear God's wrath. You will not bear God's wrath. You will not bear God's wrath. Free because of the substitute. He says, I will go in that place and perfect once for all, for all time. What do we say of such things? This is sacrifice. I understand that many claim sacrifice today, but listen to the Word of God. This is sacrifice. The sacrifice, the tabernacle that says, I will take that punishment so you don't, so that on that day, my Father will look at me and see you. That sacrifice, that is the price of our redemption. The Lamb of God. And that is the necessity of sacrifice. You can be made right to the Father, beloved, no other way. No other way. That's the necessity of sacrifice. The Lamb of God. Father in heaven, Lord, what do we say? Such a wonderful truth. We will not bear your wrath. We will not bear your wrath because of Jesus Christ, your Son, who you sent while we were still enemies, while we still raised fists in the air against you. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to condescend, to stoop low, to lay down his life of his own will, so that in vindication he would conquer the grave, he would rise and ascend and secure victory for all time, those that are in him. God, what do we say to such a sacrifice? Lord, we can only just sing out in praise and thanksgiving for what you have done for us by way of your Son. Lord, please let us never forget the weight of being spared from your wrath for eternal salvation in your presence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.